0: Listening to By the Well, a based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, I'm Robin Whittaker, and this is the episode for the third Sunday of Advent. And joining me today as a guest co host is the Reverend Dr. Craig Thompson. Welcome, Craig.
1: Thank you, Robin. Good to be here.
0: Uh, And Craig, tell people who don't know you where you're located and where you preach.
1: Of course. Uh, I'm currently the place minister with the congregation of the Evangelist, which is the Uniting Church, uh, until recently in North Melbourne, and uh, we've just recently moved to the Centre for Theology and Ministry, which is where we're recording this at the moment. Our congregation's taken up residence there for Sunday worship and a few other things, Mm -hmm. so uh, a time of great change for us.
0: Yeah, great. And you do preach most Sundays, don't you? It's I'm a-
1: in the pulpit most Sundays. Yeah. Um, uh, we're generally a pretty electionary-based kind of uh, community, so these mm-hmm. texts are what we're working on right now. Yep,
0: Great. It's good to have you here, Craig. Uh, for those of you listening, we're going to be discussing uh, – all Four texts with a focus on Isaiah, so Isaiah 61, 1 to 4, and 8 to 11. We'll briefly look at the Psalm 126. We'll spend some time with the Gospel, which for this week is John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8 and 19 to 28, and finally 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 24. And trying to discuss all of those, um, there's some beautiful grand themes here, and we'll try and, I think, embody how we think of them, particularly with an Advent lens to capture this time of the year. Great. Uh, I might give a bit of background to Isaiah. We're in Isaiah 61 here. It's often this referred to as Deutero or Trito-Isaiah. Uh, it reflects writing under the uh, post-exilic period, probably the 5th century. So uh, the Babylonian Empire has... Uh, been taken over by the Persian Empire and under King Cyrus of Persia, Jews have been allowed to return to the land and um, and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So the context here is a time of, of kind of restoration, but the restoration has been slow and not perhaps quite as people imagined. Um It's been hard to recapture the grandeur of the first temple and so on. And into that, we get this very famous voice verse of the Lord's Spirit is upon me as the Lord has anointed me. So, Craig, what did you notice? What do you think we need to notice in this reading?
1: I think uh, the upon me raises the question of who is it that's speaking here? Uh, Is it Isaiah the prophet? Um, Presumably to begin with it is, but how does that uh, sort of unfold as the tradition continues to be repeated over the passage of time? And of course a text like this pops up later on in the New Testament as well. Um, So that's there. Uh, There is the... um, Proclamation of the Year of the Lord's Favour and, interestingly, the Day of Vengeance, which uh, is a little less comfortable for us, perhaps, than the Lord's Favour. So how to process that. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we look at the text, at least the selection that we have for this particular Sunday, uh, the voice shifts a little bit from the prophet, uh, presumably, if that's the me, to the Lord speaking. And so the interplay between the prophet and and God is an interesting thing as well.
0: Yeah, I think... um You know, a creative way preachers could enter this text or or reflect could even be what it means for us to embody, um, you know, that God's anointed has many resonances in scriptures and famously the kings. um, But we might say as Christians, we're all anointed by the Holy Spirit in our baptism with water and spirit. Um, What does it mean for us both as preachers and for our communities to embody be, be people, live out this vision of people who are anointed by God and who proclaim such things. But, Indeed. yeah, yep. um, of course, yeah, as you said, in, in Luke 4, Luke Luke famously will record that this is Jesus' first synagogue sermon that's written down where Jesus yep. will then apply this to himself. So there is a a tradition of later prophets and then Jesus himself um, stepping in and, cl- and claiming this. Yes. Uh, what do we, yeah, we have these pairings here. It, it's it's quite, well, there's so much we could comment on, I'm not sure where to start. There's tenderness in the binding up of brokenhearted. Um, I think there's a there's a memory, uh, the freedom of captives, that will be like both a very pragmatic communal memory, yeah. but perhaps also a, um, there's always a memory in these prophetic texts of what God has already done for the people. Um, and then this year of favour combined with vengeance as if... God's favour and blessing cannot come without accompanying sort of judgment and sorting out. Do you have thoughts about how we handle that language?
1: Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. I mean, um, many in the church these days are at least closet universalists, if not necessarily, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, quite sure how to reconcile that with texts like this, which mm-hmm. speak of vengeance. At the very least, it seems to me that acknowledging injustice does the the language of vengeance at least points to the fact of injustice that something Mm. has gone wrong Mm. um precisely what that injustice is here is not clear um previous prophets have interpreted the exile as punishment rather than infliction of injustice for example upon israel so um it, it it's not quite so much of the prophets can speak with forked tongues, but sometimes, depending upon where they are, they're going to emphasize one dimension over the other, uh, yes. the judgment, or, 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 or subsequently the, the justice and the vengeance kind of thing. And it's perhaps very much a matter of what the people at the time need to hear, how they've come to understand where they're at. And uh, this is a very different space to the space of the prophet Isaiah himself um, you know, a couple hundred years beforehand um,
0: yeah.
1: speaking to uh, Israel about uh, well, justice in the community and the justice of God yeah. uh, and, and the punishment, which um, is how the Assyrian catastrophes in interpreted. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yes, and their own... Sin and need for repentance yes. because of that. Um, yeah. There's yeah. A, there's a slight shift here as, yeah. as it looks to re- towards restoration and hope.
1: I mean, it's tempting to sweep the vengeance stuff away, but it, it's everywhere, so we really have to <laughs> wrestle with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we
0: did. We can't ignore <laughs> it. Um, there's. Uh, I wonder too. In the, in the previous verse, we've got a lot of scholars will note that in this this language of proclaiming freedom to captives, is language that um, very strongly echoes. Uh, the language we see in Leviticus twenty-five around the year of jubilee, so the year of jubilee being that fiftieth year where you are released from debts, and yep. and it's so when we read things like freedom here, this is not just some spiritual freedom. This mm-hmm. this is tangible social, economic, relational um, liberation. Yes,
1: a kind of a reset of the system, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so I think. Uh, for me, depending who you are, right? If you're the person who's owed the debt, there is a there is a cost and a redistribution in that what is experienced as absolute favour for one person, um, might actually feel like
1: a cost, punishment, to else. yeah, yes. to
0: someone else. So yes. maybe that I'm not saying it does away with it, and I don't want to cheapen, yeah. but there is a way of seeing. There's lots of rebalancing that goes on here and then even actually complete reversals, so mourning into gladness. Yes. Um, and yes. this language is so familiar to us from Luke's Gospel in particular.
1: And, and it will be tempting for the preacher to leave it sort of hanging in the air without yeah. the concrete application of what this yeah. would actually look like in a, in a set of real social, economic and political relationships.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can we in the lectionary takes us to verse eight where we get this "I the Lord"? So all of a sudden we have kind of almost a God speaking through the messenger. Or um, what's the kind of image of God we get here, Craig? What, what's your sense of um, you know what's what's what are these words doing in terms of
1: yeah. "I the Lord"? I mean, one of the things that strikes me about uh, later Isaiah uh, is is the contrast that, that is very starkly drawn between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and and, and all of the other gods. And, and it's really pushed to the nth degree to the extent that God is so far above the gods that God is almost not a god anymore. And so I think the I is very strong. Um, I, the Lord, love justice as distinct from perhaps some, some of the other gods who who might be a little bit more uh on the side of the rich and the powerful and the wealthy yes. who are inflicting injustice and so forth. So, um, again, in the context of a people released from um, imperial captivity and so forth, uh, and the gods associated with that experience, um, there's a strong a strong emphasis on the character of the God of Israel. And subsequently, of course, the, the prophet goes on to say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. You know, it's in this yes. particular identity, with this particular history, this particular set of promises, and not just God in the loose, generic kind of sense.
0: Yeah, that's. thank you for pointing that out. That's so important. And, and of course, if people don't know this, where you have a Lord with all caps like that, yes. it means that the, the word in the Hebrew is Yahweh, which is not a word um, I say very much because Jews see it as a holy name of God that shouldn't be uttered, um, sometimes it ends up being Jehovah in sort yep. of English, um, but it is the particular name that Moses is given for how you will know that this is your God. So it is that um, it is that particular experience of God that this people have had yeah. and have a covenant with. Right? Indeed. Yeah.
1: It's an important principle, I think, for you know, thinking in biblical terms or thinking through biblical terms in a present context where our, our Present question very much or very often today is, is there a god? Um, it's never a biblical question. The biblical question is always which god. That which is, god? it presumes we are subject to powers, and it asks a question: which one? And therefore, the name, mm. which is how you distinguish between the gods, um, is, is is quite important. Um, and and yeah. the polemic of not that one, but this one; not that way, but this way, is quite crucial. I think in Yeah, interpreting these texts.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, The other thing that struck me in this reading towards the end in verses sort of 10 and 11 is we get a kind of one way the community can embody uh, the message, and it's in these images of being wrapped in clothing, right, the garments of triumph, victory's cloak, um, images of a bridegroom and a priest and a bride. Um, In some ways these are all, of course, poetic um poetic ways of thinking and and then we get plant images and other ways of imagining what uh, this rejoicing and participating in the promises of God look like. But as I think ahead to where we might end up in John, you know John will testify to Christ. Yeah. and one of the themes that I was you know've been thinking with in terms of the way all these passages speak this week in Advent is one of the questions for our communities is how do we embody the good news? How are we testifying to Christ? I mean, we have to know which, which God we're pointing to and the nature of that God. Um, but how do we do that? And I think we can do that with words, but there is something about we do that with our garments. I mean, not literally our clothing, but <coughs> maybe the you know we do it with even the way we dress our churches. Yes. Um, right. Yes. Um, sometimes quite unconsciously, we are communicating all sorts of things about the God we believe in.
1: Indeed. And in fact, on a Sunday, most often I do cover myself in a garment, which yes, is which is alb. intended yep. to to illustrate something of just the point being made here of a, a righteousness or a standing before God, which is not just my own personal identity in history, but yes. uh, is a participation in something else. Um, so to understand the elb, the white gown, not so much as a priestly garment that the minister wears but as a baptismal garment the the anointing and the covering with something else yeah
0: yeah oh that's that's really helpful because it takes me back to the the even the first verse the spirit of the Lord is upon me the fact we don't have an, a named prophet here I mean it's all under the book of Isaiah but um there's a certain kind of anonymity which I think the Elb does right it says yes. we stand in this tradition but it's not about Me, Robin, or you, Craig, and our own particular gifts—it's—it's what we've been given by God and the tradition in which we stand. Indeed, I I like it. Anything else you want to say about Isaiah before we probably need to start moving on to the Psalm?
1: No, look—it's. I've been enjoying these texts over the the Sundays of Advent. Uh, Just the the presentation of a God who comes in and before whom all flesh is grass and withering flowers and those kinds of things Mm. and and, and who, in a sense, is Lord of history. It invites us into a different perspective on what we think is happening around us.
0: Yeah. So Psalm 126, in some ways this is just different language for what I think are very similar themes. We're talking about restoring of fortunes, um, you know, Filling, you know, language of filling mouths with laughter, with joy, uh, you know, lots of language of rejoicing, which we're also going to get in First Thessalonians. Uh, so, kind of reversals, <coughs> excuse me, but grounded in, um, grounded in a reality that. Uh, I, this is, this is not a kind of a toxic positivity as some people talk about. I've, yes. I've got students who've come out of Pentecostal traditions who'll talk about, uh, and I'm not meaning to diss all Pentecostals here, but it can manifest as a you've always got to show how joyful and happy and blessed you are and you can't actually turn up to work going – I'm actually just having a crap week or I'm just so in despair about what's going on in the world or whatever. Uh, This acknowledges that there are tears and there is weeping. Indeed, Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What what do you notice about the psalm? I
1: I love the sort of balance in the psalm here that, um, in fact, a little unlike the Isaiah text we've just looked at, uh, which could be read as a little bit too happy and optimistic mm. about the future. Uh, this text begins with a remembrance. Uh, we were like those who were dreams, who dreamed so un- yeah. so unlikely it was whatever it was, the blessing is that they're remembering here. And it's out of that experience of uh, prior ev- event of salvation that they now pray. Uh, mm. So the prayer isn't just a prayer which leaps out of the, uh, the suffering heart um, uh, and out of no... No sense of who it is as being addressed the one being addressed here uh, this Lord is one that we know and uh, yeah. um, whether it's a knowledge of the individual or the community itself or whether it is the the heritage the the, the, the faith heritage that they're mm-hmm. looking back beyond their own immediate experience um, and so they pray um, out of that and uh, do again what you've done before kind of thing yeah um, it's uh it draws our attention, I think, to the fact that the church itself uh, prays out of memory. And um, for this text to pop up in this particular way at this time of the year, it, it reminds us that uh, Advent is very much a season of prayer. It's yeah. a season of, of a response to what we're experiencing, which is beyond our power to change, and uh, calling out to God for uh, this, this restoration Um, uh, shouts of joy that replace the tears.
0: Yeah, and that remembering I think is, I mean it's everywhere in our Christian tradition, right, even if we don't always think of it in that way. I've been reading Fleming Rutledge's book on Advent, which is a sort of selection of sermons and various reflections she's done over the years. And I found it helpful when she articulated really clearly there that at Advent uh, we're celebrating Three things, three Advents. And this word Adventus in Latin is just arrival. So, three arrivals. Um, one is, of course, what we are moving towards at Christmas, which can't help but dominate culturally if we're in the West, which is the incarnation of Christ born of Mary. Um, but we constantly are celebrating the arrival of Christ that comes to us in word and sacraments every time we worship and we gather and we pray. Um, And at Advent we're particularly asked to be mindful of the future coming of Christ and somehow we're holding all of that together. But for me I think being able to sit with the hope of the psalm and the hope of Isaiah, um, knowing that there is hope and restoration offered through God, God's promise is that, um, is, is a promise we can be confident about particularly because we've had the experience of the incarnation already, we've already seen what God can do when God breaks into the world.
1: Indeed, yeah. yes, yeah. And yeah. as we tell that story again, we are we are really offering an alternative narrative to the sort of stories that are being told around us, even yeah. here and now. I mean, there are many stories we're hearing them all over the place. They have uh, very strong and tempting, and sometimes quite oppressive, you know, kind yeah. of a. Um, Appeal about them, but uh, here is a story which is a different way of thinking about um, how we've come to be where we are and, and what the future might look like.
0: Yeah, yep. Uh, okay, so shall we move on to the Gospel?
1: Yep, let's do that.
0: Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By the Well, for extra content and discussion. So John 1, 6 to 8, and then we jump a chunk of text and go from 19 to 28. It's in some ways an odd selection of verses for Advent it is. 3. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: It would seem to be quite, you know, in a sense as a lectionary, sometimes is tempted to do almost contrived that... Uh, here we have one who uh, is a voice crying out in the wilderness, which picks yeah. up um, uh, the Isaiah text and so forth. So there is a strong identification being drawn between the prophet of the Isaiah text and John the Baptist here, yep. and that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does all the Christological stuff pretty much drops out, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's a promise fulfillment construction, I think that this selection gives us.
0: Yes, but but a bit like the prophet in Isaiah, I think. Um, where Jesus will point to himself embodying this more fully, uh, there is a sense that that both John, the John we know as John the Baptizer, although he doesn't actually really, he's not called that in the Gospel of John, yep. um, and the prophet in Isaiah 61 are both sort of pointing to God. I think there's a commonality there about, um, yeah. The in,
1: indeed. I mean, later on, John, he must increase, I must decrease. Yeah. Um, uh, got The contrast being drawn between different bearings of the spirit different anointings of the spirit
0: yeah, yeah that's right and it, I mean all that stuff is quite interesting and and scholars will talk about how it it might have a historical grounding in that um, there did seem to be um, some tension in earliest Christianity around status and that John had disciples we get references to the yes. disciples of John who came yes. to the disciples of Jesus um, so he did have his own movement and following. And I, we see in the Gospels uh, a really clear attempt to make it to make it obvious that, that Jesus is higher. That's right. And he so John in, yeah. will decrease. Yeah, as yeah, Jesus right. increases. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, they're not rival prophets, and John knew he was pointing to Jesus. That's this right. Is how this? Yeah. Um, oh, what? What do we? I, I want to just talk for, about this testimony language, which can I, doesn't testimony when I hear people test giving testimony in, as a. Mainstream Protestant sometimes makes me slightly uncomfortable. I'm just going to own that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a cluster of terms, witness. It's where we get the language of martyr from. Martyria is the Greek word here. And John uses this language over 40 times in his gospel. So um, testifying, testimony, it's what John the baptizer does. It's what Jesus does. Um, always pointing, you know, John points to Jesus. Jesus points to the one he calls Father, Um and I think it does beg the big question, you know, one obvious theme to preach this week for preachers would be how do, you know, in fact, if if you're like a lay preacher and pre- constructing a whole sermon seems like too much work, or whoever you are, mm. just giving a faith testimony this week would be a very powerful thing to do. It right? would.
1: It speaks about the advent of God in my particular experience. Yes, yeah, that's and, right. Um, there's that can be very edifying, very encouraging for, uh, yeah. for others uh, just to reflect upon their own experience yeah. and, and how significant the actual existential relationship to God is yeah. uh, above uh, liturgical practice or um, highfalutin theology, the sort of <laughs> things so we tie ourselves in knots around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But um, the presence of heart. uh, The significance of heart, uh, uh, not just over head, but alongside other elements of what it means to be human um, before God.
0: I think I think that would work. And then, of course, the challenge to our congregations is is also how how are we testifying? Whether that's with our words or our deeds or our you know clothing. To pick up that theme from Isaiah, Um, how are we pointing to Jesus? And if we're communities that don't point to Jesus Christ, what are we there for? Yes, right. Uh, You know. It takes us back to some really basic questions around identity. I think
1: it does. Um, you just prompted for me a thought about what it means to point to Christ. I've just been looking at yes. the twenty sixth verse of the, okay. the selection, yep. and oh, so John, you know, um, why are you baptizing? Is the question put to John here? He responds, "I baptize with water," and continues on now. In Advent 2, John says, I think it's in the Mark text, I baptise with water, but the one who comes will baptise with the Holy Spirit. So the gospel is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The contrast is between just mere water and the gift of the Spirit. John has tweaked that, assuming Mm. he's looking at a similar sort of text in the background somewhere. I baptise with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Um, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. And I hadn't thought about this until I just a conversation a moment ago about that the God who is bigger than all the gods. um, The one to whom Paul John points to is kind of hard to point to. You don't know who he is, and and he's bigger than um, you can imagine, and I'm not worthy to untie the thong of your sandals. So there's a bit of the vision of God, of Isaiah, sneaking in Mm. to the identity of Jesus here. And Mm. and John's Jesus, the, the evangelist John's Jesus, is a slippery, hard-to-pin-down, all-over-the-place <laughs> kind of character. You know, yeah, He never answers yeah. the question that gets asked and he has all these big I am's which resonates with the Old Testament name for God I and am, so yeah, forth. Yeah. So there's a sense in which the very simple historicity of this conversation between John mm. and uh, his Jewish interlocutors, um, it, it looks simple but all the Christological stuff that's been dropped out about word and so forth um, in this yeah. passage is the big stuff that really can't quite be contained by the, the history yeah. and the conversation. Yeah.
0: Yes, and of course we, we start with the image of light and darkness, which we've got a little of in, in the, this cluster of verses. Um, so the one he points to is light that shines in the darkness and cannot be overcome, Like what you know. In one way, it's yep. a simple image we can imagine, but also what does that mean? Yep. Um, and it will be followed by, you know, he will literally point in the next verse and say, here's Jesus, you know, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yep. Um, so we, we are getting grand Christological um, claims, but n- maybe not in... Easy to recognise ways, or ways that are, are not simple in themselves.
1: Well, they're not not, not least no. because Isaiah is sitting in the background, and Isaiah's God is so big, yeah. and, and a human being is so small. So the you know the the, the challenge of incarnational thinking is beginning to sort of play yeah. out here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: any anything else? I mean, I'm tempted at this point to ask what would you preach, but we haven't got to Thessalonians yet. Yep. Yep. Should we talk about that quickly and Indeed, then come yes. back, tie the, yep. attempt to tie <laughs> this all up? Yep. Um, themes we've seen already, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice. You could pick up these themes in a really simple sermon. You know, Rejoice always, what does that mean? Pray without ceasing. Well, how do we live a life of prayer we obviously can't spend our time actually with our eyes closed and saying words, and obviously prayer is also much more than just that, but what does being in a constant state of prayerfulness or or conversation with God look like? And give thanks in all circumstances Um, could be. uh, And then we we head towards a a blessing. But, uh, yeah, Craig, what do you do with this? I I
1: like this text, and though I'm going with the Isaiah readings for for Advent and we'll probably run with... um, Uh, Isaiah again for this particular week. Uh, The Thessalonian letters are often associated with apocalyptic thought because there's a fair bit going on in there. Um, Mm. uh, But it's interesting, we've been reading this text now for 2,000 years. So whereas perhaps in Paul's original context, he's thinking about a relatively short period of time for 2,000 years the church has been reading Rejoice, always means something different after 2,000 years <laughs> yes. than, it, than, it, than it does <laughs> in, in the first century. Pray without ceasing. As a, as a claim upon the way we exist, I find this quite an extraordinary text. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not quenching the spirit, not despising the word of the prophets, testing things, holding fast to what is good, abstaining from every form of evil. There's a, a very high calling here. Yeah. Um, so, as we wait, if we want to get a little bit Advent themed, yep. as we wait and hope, um, this is the shape of the waiting and the hoping. Yes. Um, precisely how it works in your local context. Some is obvious, standing for evil, perhaps you know, exactly what giving thanks in all circumstances looks like or rejoicing always looks like. Um, mm. An interesting thing for a community or uh, an individual to work out.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, in the context of 1st Thessalonians i mean this is a text where one of the reasons Paul seems to be writing to them is they are asking what happens to the people who have died so again this is not some just sort of like joyful yay we've got Jesus life is always good this yes. is the rejoice and the pray and the hold fast and give thanks is written to a community who are grieving Indeed. and who know the reality of death um and again, it's that tension between living in living in ways. It's the act of waiting you're pointing to. The living yeah. in ways that show our hope, indeed. Um, um, but not in a way that, um, what's the word? It, it dismisses too easily that there's yeah. there's pain and that there's things to lament over right now and to despair in our indeed. world. Indeed,
1: I mean. Yeah, we know it's night time, but we're called to live as in the day. And, and yeah. the, the, con- the the tension between those two realities, those, if you like, competing narratives, um, is the tension, I think, of faith, that, that is discovering what, or, or modelling what, or experimenting with, experimenting with what the day might be, mm. when the day hasn't yet quite broken.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the very least, even if you don't draw this into preaching, I do, I do think there's some Beautiful words here that um, could be part of the sending out and the blessing ah, of the community. Yeah, right? a great, to,
1: a great word of mission at the end, yeah. um, and worth memorising. So, it, you know, so that yes, you can you actually can address say, the people yes. um, rather yeah. than just be reading it. Very yeah. powerful.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So use it liturgically, if nothing else. Um, so we've got about a minute or two here, Craig. It, um, you said before you're, you're focusing on Isaiah this Advent. What? Yeah. How would you? What would you preach this week? Do you, is that emerging for you?
1: Well, it's uh, something I think I'm building uh, over the, the several the first three weeks of, of Advent. The first week I was very captured with this the image or the crying out, you know, "Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and mm-hmm. and come down, and the mountains would shake like the fire that you know kindles the brushwood." Those sort of things. Shortly, sure, you've delivered us into the hands of our iniquity, we, and the psalmist has. Uh, we've had enough of the bread of tears. You know, thank you very much. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a, a strong realism, and um, this is the people of faith crying out because of their particular persecution, I suppose, as as God's people. Um, the church, at least the church that we are part of here in a modern Western culture isn't quite experienced in that, but the world as a whole certainly is. Um, so the crying out to God and the looking for God to come down and thinking Um, how has God come down and how therefore can we look forward to it in the second week of Advent um, uh, the words of comfort comfort my people and yet the the word of comfort is all flesh is grass and flowers that's going to wither it's a strange kind of comfort you know. (laughs) and again I think there's great contrast between what we see going on around us and the promise of the God who comes the God who actually loves the spring if you like and the flowers springing up again and all that kind of stuff so for this particular uh, coming Sunday, uh, Advent 3, I think, uh, again, uh, the God who overshadows the, uh, the experience um, that fills out that unexpectedly, and that's the thing about joy, I suppose, that it actually uh, it breaks in unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, I think for me, building on those other two Isaac, um texts in, in the last couple of weeks, Uh, it seems to me that that's probably where I'm going to be going with this one for this
0: Sunday. Wonderful. Yep. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.